So, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves, they have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. <clears throat> I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do, I, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. <coughs> well, um, in our next uh, um, sermon in the Psalms, that's what we're looking at this morning, Psalm 42 and 43. And just a note on these two Psalms, they are pretty much taken historically always as uh, being one Psalm. Um, in the very um, earliest manuscripts in the Masoretic text, they are printed out as one Psalm. And as we see when we go through it, that the refrains in both Psalms are, are identical. The stanzas in the Hebrew are in perfect harmony. So, so we're, we're taking them as, as one start Psalm as they historically uh, usually are. And I hope and pray that as we do go through this song together, it will be helpful for us. I wonder how you felt <clears throat> when you heard these psalms being read. We've been saying as we've been going through the psalms on Sunday morning that the psalms are the songs of the heart. They are the songs that resonate with every single experience that a Christian lives through. And over the past few weeks, we've been able to sit in a number of those experiences together, haven't we? We've been able to rejoice with the God who saves us in Psalm 126. We've been able to marvel in the glory of creation at the God who speaks and reveals himself to us in Psalm 19. We've been able to rest in the knowledge that God is the God ultimately in Jesus, who offers us true righteousness and makes us right before him in Psalm 16. And those songs make our hearts glad, and right they should. 
But this morning we come to a very different kind of psalm, don't we? We come to a very different kind of song of the heart. We come to a psalm that is dominated by one refrain that occurs three times. In verse 5, verse 11 and verse 5 of Psalm 43, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? You see, we come to a psalm this morning that resonates with, possibly, the most emotionally powerful part of the Christian's life. And that is the experience of normal, everyday suffering. And so I wonder how you felt when we read this psalm, because I am convinced that as we were going through it, even at this very moment, if you're doing relatively well within yourself, that for most of us in this room, especially the older we are perhaps, that there are experiences of real pain in your life that were brought to mind as you listened to the description of how this son of Korah is really feeling and what it is he's going through. For others of you, maybe, I'm guessing those who are younger, perhaps, and, and maybe haven't lived much of life yet, maybe you don't resonate, actually, with how the psalmist is feeling. And, and that's not a bad thing, but don't zone out. Because the reality of life is, you almost certainly will. I'm not wishing that on you, that's just the picture the Bible paints of the Christian life in a fallen world. It will be marked with moments where you are truly downcast, distressed, all at sea, where your soul is in turmoil. It is all but guaranteed for the Christian. So reading the psalm is even more important for you, if, if that's the case. As and when life takes a turn for the worst, it, it won't surprise you or uproot you. However, for many of you sitting here this morning, I know very much that you are identifying with this psalm in real time, as you sit in truly awful situations. I know that there are many of you here in this room that, as you look back over the past week or the past month, maybe over the past many years, you feel the hot tears of the psalmist in verse 3. You feel the roar of the waters over your head in verse 7. You are very much asking the question of yourself, why are you cast down in my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And helpfully, as we get into this psalm, I hope, we see that all of the things that make our souls downcast, I think they're all covered by the experience of this psalmist. Because I'm convinced that this psalm is deliberately dealing very much with the, the general muck of a normal everyday life. <clears throat> Commentators on Psalm 42 and 43 are split pretty much 50-50 between whether this psalmist is struggling spiritually or whether he's struggling physically. Uh, many commentators spend a lot of time trying to work out whether this psalm is talking about a specific point in history, such as King David perhaps running away from Saul or another figure of God. I don't think anyone's overly convinced that it's King David for what it's worth. I think that's right. And for fear of being seen to sit on the fence, I think it's probably a combination of both spiritual factors and physical factors that seem to contribute to the psalmist's soul being downcast. I think we see both in this psalm. We see a man hemmed in by his enemies. That's a physical thing. But we also see a man struggling to see God clearly. He's affected spiritually. 
I think it seems like there's a combination of both. Dick Lucas says of this passage, he says the spiritual and the physical torments, they bounce and fall off each other all the way through this psalm. You don't know where one begins and the other ends. It's all just a mess that can't quite be quantified. And how like ordinary life is that? Suffering isn't parceled up into neat little boxes. It's often all-encompassing. And our whole person is affected. You can't tell one end of it from the other. It often affects our very soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? That's the suffering of a believer that strikes right to the heart of his very being. That's what's being described here. And so it is in that light in the light of of being a normal believer in in the real fallen world, a believer that faces normal everyday suffering, that all of us come to Psalm 42 and 43 this morning. And to get to the heart of this psalm, we have to get to the heart of how this man is feeling. So the first of only two points this morning, let's get a good look at the psalmist's condition. From this psalm, what do we learn about the psalmist's condition? Well, the descriptions of his condition are varied and vivid. But the main thing I think is abundantly obvious is that the psalmist is feeling very far from God. Read with me verses 1 to 4 again. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Now remember that, that the psalmist is a committed believer in God and that's helpful for us, isn't it? Again, this isn't a psalm of suffering because of sin, or of backsliding, we do suffer in those ways, and other psalms deal with that. But this psalm is dealing with the general suffering of a true believer, someone whose life has been turned on its head somehow, but whose knee-jerk reaction is to thirst for a God who seems so far away, like a deer panting for water. You can imagine that. Tongue hanging out, desperate for relief, so his soul thirsts for the living God. I want God, says the psalmist, in the midst of this desperate situation. I I am desperate for God. The problem is here, he seems so distant. And so in the midst of this, the question that is asked here in this psalm is striking, verse 3. They, and I think that is the psalmist's enemies that we read about, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? This is a question that is asked again in verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And this question of where God is, this feeling of having been abandoned by God is riven all the way through the psalm. Verse 2, the psalmist asks, when shall I come and appear before God? Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Psalm 43, verse 2, why have you rejected me? Whatever the situation, the the psalmist feels as if he has been abandoned by his God. And as a consequence, he is yearning for him again, longing to see him. He is so because God seems nowhere close. 
And this is all the more stark when you realise what the psalmist's job is. And we get a glimpse of that in the heading to the psalm, to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a family that looked after the temple worship. They were temple musicians. In fact, they would literally lead the people into the temple for worship. This man's job was to be the first person in and the last person out, if you like. He was the one the people looked to to lead them in their worship of the living God. And so as this committed believer in his situation wonders where God is, so he looks back to the past and remembers the time when he and God were truly close. We see that in verse 4, which now makes sense in the light of what the psalmist does. These things I remember, he said, as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession into the house of God with glad shouts, songs of praise. That used to be me, he said. I used to be so close to you. I was right at the heart of worship. I remember being glad and shouting these songs of praise. They used to be me. But I'm not there now. I wonder how many of us have had that experience of yearning for the good days of the past, the reminiscing of the life that we used to lead, How many of us have found ourselves sitting in the darkness of a horrible week, in the mess of a brutal year, and we find ourselves suddenly looking back at life long ago and thinking, look at what I used to be like. Look at how I used to live. I was so happy, so secure. I was so faithful and committed. I was full of life. Things used to excite me. I struggled well, but I kept going. I seemed so close to God. That's what I used to be like, but I'm not there now. The remembrance is a source of pain for the psalmist, as he longs for good days past, and so he comes to his lament for the first time. Oh, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? I feel so far away from the nearness I used to experience with the living God. I feel so far away from the Sam I used to be. I feel so far away from those heady days when you and I, God, we were so close. I really miss them. Oh, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, groans the psalmist. God, where are you? For this psalmist, God seems so very distant. And the chasm between where he once was to where he is now, I think is shown vividly in the language of verse 6. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. The psalmist is in northern Palestine here. Mount Mizar is miles away from Jerusalem, miles away from the temple, miles away from the presence of God. Whether the psalmist is physically writing from here or this is a metaphor for where he feels he is, it's a sign he feels nowhere near God. Mizar, if you like, is in the wrong direction. It's right over the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's close to Israel's enemies, in fact. Hence, I think, verse 9. Why must I go about mourning, oppressed from my enemy, where they ask the same question that they ask in verse 3, where is your God? The psalmist feels as if he's in a foreign land, almost. And if he isn't physically, he may as well be. He's nowhere near home. Nowhere near God's presence, nowhere near the temple, which gave him so much joy. 
Instead, he's now sitting amidst his enemies who see him suffer. And so they taunt him with, well, where is your God? And if you think about it, that question is a real kick in the teeth. Because in the light of what the psalmist is feeling, can you see how horrifying those taunts are of the enemies asking that question, where is your God? I remember vividly, as if it were yesterday, lying on a hospital bed in Pembrokeshire at the age of 17 for the third month in a row, after having bombed out of school because of a terrible illness and a serious operation. All my friends going off to university without me, having lost my physical health, my my mental health, failing exams, having to give up everything I'd enjoyed and hoped for in that year. And genuinely, a non-Christian teacher said to me, in all intents and purposes, Sam... Where is your God now? And the truly horrifying thing about that question was that I wasn't sure of the answer. Not then. The dread that filled me as I lay there, mulling that question over and over again. Well, where is my God? You see, the true horror for the psalmist here is the thought that they ask a really good question and I don't know the answer. What if my enemies are right? That's the horror, I think, of the psalm, being hammered with incredible doubts when you've already got your teeth in the dirt. Has that not also been the normal experience of some of us here? Truly wondering whether God really has disappeared, especially as we sit in our states of utter desperation and depression. Where is your God? There have been moments in my life where I've thought, I'm not sure. When me and my wife Jen lowered our second child, Charlotte, who was born dead into the ground at her funeral only four weeks ago. Sometimes I'm not sure. On that bed in Pembrokeshire, my soul ached for him again, though. I thirsted for him in those moments. At my daughter's graveside, I longed for him again. And I missed the days when I was with him, when I was well, when life was exciting. Even though it felt I was in a foreign land without him. And so this brings the psalmist back to where he started. In his cycle of desperation, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? The condition of the psalmist is that he feels God is so distant. To use the language of the psalm, he feels isolated, rejected and forgotten by God. And as a consequence, the question that hammers away at his broken heart is the one he is terrified of the answer to. Where is your God? Now, stepping out of the psalm for just a little bit of air, because it's all quite close, it's all very heavy... Um, Isn't it truly, truly helpful that this is a strong believer who is asking and struggling in the face of these questions? You see, here in the psalm, we have a truly suffering believer who does know God and who yearns for him and who misses him, but who really is struggling with doubt in the face of these oppressive taunts and in the light of his situation. Now, helpfully, the psalms allow us to see how normal this experience is. Thinking and feeling this way, in other words, is, is not the sign of being faithless and sinful, It's the sign of the normal struggles of a believer. Any careful reading of the Bible will show you that these questions of utter desperation regarding where God is, why he seems so distant in the the midst of depression, they're everywhere. Elijah asks God, I've had enough. Take my life. 
King David says, Troubles without number surround me. My heart fails within me. Where have you gone? Friends, it is so normal to feel like you don't know what's going on. It is so normal to not be able to see God clearly or feel him close. It is so normal to ask the question of God, God, where are you? It is so normal. It's so normal to doubt whether he really is working for the good of those who love him. And that is, I think, exactly where this psalmist is. He is dealing with the so, so normal everyday life of a believer in a fallen world. This is incredibly embarrassing, but there is no way of getting out of it. I'm just going to have to tell you. But one of my favourite books growing up, and incidentally, before I confess this, I'd like to point out as a disclaimer that I grew up with two sisters, so they shoulder the blame for all of this. But one of my very favourite books growing up was Anne of Green Gables. I know, none of you are shocked by that. Anyway, in the book, Anne with an E, a little orphan, gets placed with an adoptive carer, Marilla Cuthbert. And Marilla Cuthbert is a profoundly strong Christian character. And to little hyper-emotional Anne, for whom the whole of life is one enormous adventure, everything is either gloriously wonderful or desperately tragic. It's either one or the other. There's nothing in between. I can't think why I resonated with her character so much. But in one scene where Anne is at her wit's end and she throws herself onto Marilla and laments in floods of tears, she says, I am in the depths of despair. Then she asks, have you ever been in the depths of despair, Marilla? And Marilla Cuthbert turns around and says, no, child, I have not. To be in despair is to fully turn your back on God. How very pious, but how very unlike the Bible. You see, as a community of believers, we mustn't give a false impression of a Christian life. Because the Bible doesn't give us a false impression of a Christian life. The Christian life is a spiritual life, one of battle and groaning and disappointment and difficulty and despair. Being a good Christian, therefore, isn't going through life with a stiff upper lip and not letting our guard down. Being a Christian is being real with God and real with each other. And that's helpful, because in my heart of hearts, sometimes all I can ever say is, God, I'm in despair. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure where you are, but I am desperate for you. I am desperate to feel something different. I am desperate to be out of this situation. This psalmist knows his God, but he is still bent low with incredible suffering. And so he struggles with doubts and questions, and he struggles and he fights. It is so normal. If we are theologically well informed enough to realise we live in a fallen world, we should expect to live through times like the ones that are described in this psalm and many others. The Bible does not give a false impression as to what life is really like. We absolutely don't need to pretend. But wonderfully, gloriously, the psalmist begins to work something out. And this is our second point this morning. In the light of his situation, what is the psalmist's response? Well, have you noticed that in the midst of his horror, in the midst of his desperation, in the midst of his despair, the psalmist has never lost sight of one thing because, note, this psalm is not only centred around why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me, Gloriously, that refrain resolves every single time. Hope in God. 
for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And what is amazing about this psalm, I think, is, is the way that the psalm, Psalm 42 and 43, slowly tilts from the first part of that couplet, where the emphasis in the first two thirds of the psalm is on the psalmist suffering and his downcast soul, towards the second part of that couplet, hoping in God, where by the end of the psalm, the psalmist begins to realise where God has really been all along and what he is really like. You see, up until verse 8, there's actually been little for the psalmist to be glad about. It's all entirely negative. In fact, the very low point of the psalm is verse 7. He is overwhelmed by his depression to such an extent, it is as if he's being crashed around by torrents of water as God's breakers and waves wash over him, barely able to breathe. Incidentally, verse 7 is negative, I think, I'm pretty sure. Um, I'd only discovered over the last few weeks that many songwriters use the phrase deep calls to deep as, as a positive deep movement of God's spirit. I think the word deep, especially in terms of water in Hebrew literature, nearly always used to describe sadness and difficulty and separation and loss. That the breakers and the waves are in marked contrast to the quiet stream mentioned in verse 1. That, that's the positive water that the, that the psalmist is looking forward to. Verse 7 is the low point. As one commentator says, the psalmist is at his last in verse 7. He is literally drowning under the weight of his suffering. And at that point, at the psalmist's lowest point, we get our very first shaft of light, verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The psalmist is at the very edge. He's clinging on by his fingernails, but at that moment he remembers something of God's incredible character. Despite being up to his neck in suffering, he remembers that God is the God of steadfast love. That is the steadfast love of Exodus 34, the, the creedal statement about himself that God gives to his people on Mount Sinai. I am your God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The psalmist begins to see God for who he is and who he's always been. And this is where we begin to break out of the doom of Psalm 42 and into the light of Psalm 43. Just read Psalm 43 with me again. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. What's changed? Well, the psalmist's situation hasn't changed, but his perspective in his situation has. And as he, he starts by asking for help, vindicate me, O God, defend my cause. How wonderfully simple is that? The psalm isn't complicated. Up until now, the psalmist has been understandably wallowing almost in his suffering, asking all the questions a believer is allowed to wrestle with. But here, for the first time in the psalm, he asks for God's help. Vindicate me. Take me away from my enemies. Send out your light, we read. Let them lead me. Help me. I just wonder how many of us, when we find ourselves in the situation of the psalmist, forget to simply pray for God's help. And sometimes praying is hard, especially at times like this. One commentator very helpfully says the following, when a Christian feels this low, prayer seems impossible. 
All talk of Christian joy and peace seem like empty platitudes, and God is remote, more like a distant relative than a heavenly father. I know for many of us that that is our experience. Prayer seems impossibly difficult, when all I want to do is weep and cling on. I don't even know what to pray. Well, helpfully, for two-thirds of this psalm, neither really does the psalmist. He's talking to God about his situation, but it's only here that we start to see him praying for help. Again, the lack of wanting to pray, the inability to, it's a very real thing. But the psalmist, in remembering who his God is in verse 8, the God who steadfastly loves him, now turns to him in prayer and he asks for help. Not only does the psalmist begin to pray, but he also does so. He also begins to attribute to God more of God's wonderful characteristics. Verse 2, you are the God in whom I take refuge. I know that now. Verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. The psalmist is remembering more and more of who God is. He remembers more of his safety, his constancy, his light and his truth. And this transforms his perspective so much in this verse that we get to the glorious heights of this psalm in verse 3b and 4. Let, me, let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you again. The very place he feels so far from in verses 4 and 5 of 42, where he is far away from the temple, misses the days we used to enjoy the worship, well, he now hopes in a steadfastly loving God that he will be there one day again. And this is where the second half of this repeating couplet rings brightly for the first time. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And there it is. Incredible hope. In a steadfast loving God of refuge and light and life and truth. You see, this psalmist understands that his situation is not all there is. There are better days to come. And herein lies the real heart of this passage. For what truly does the hope in God, who is this psalmist's salvation, look like? Well, very obviously, it looks like Jesus Christ. And this is where we really break open this psalm. For up until now, we've missed one remarkable detail. And that is that the word downcast here in the Hebrew is exactly the same word that is used in the Greek to describe the state of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew twenty-six thirty-eight: My soul is downcast or overwhelmed even to death, says Jesus. You see, the truly remarkable thing about this psalm is that Jesus knows how this feels. Jesus truly identifies with the suffering of an everyday life. Jesus truly identifies with the pain and torture of isolation and loss and abandonment. Jesus' soul is downcast to the point of death. Jesus in the garden is at the end of himself. Jesus in the garden is anxious to the point of sweating drops of blood. Jesus in the garden is, is contemplating whether he really can go through with the cross at all. And Jesus on the cross itself cries out to his own father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My friends, King Jesus, in ways you cannot imagine, sits here in this psalm with you. 
And that is not a platitude. I know, I really know what some of you are going through. I've sat with some of you this week talking through all these things. I've listened to your situations, which range from the desperately sad to the wildly frustrating to the absolutely tragic. The despair of cruel loss, the weight of deep regret, the horrors of unrelenting mental and physical illness, the astonishing difficulties of being a parent that makes you feel like death, the crippling emptiness of not being able to have children, the unbearable shock of a life-changing illness, the unspeakable anger at remarkable overt injustice in your place of work. For some of you, you are sitting in the breakers and the waves of verse 7, in the tears of verse 8, in the torment of verse 10, and you are wrestling with the question of where God really is. There's not much I can say to you this morning other than in answer to that question, Jesus has been where he's always been, sitting with you and identifying with you and suffering with you. Really, truly, wholeheartedly, Jesus is right there with you. And this is what the psalmist recognises. Because have you noticed the question that isn't asked once in the last third of this psalm, in Psalm 43? That is the question, where is your God? It's asked twice up until now, but as soon as the psalmist begins to recover a remembrance of God's character, as soon as he begins to pray for God's help, what does he remember? That God has been there with him all along. The question, where is your God, doesn't need to be asked anymore, or it's no longer a bother to him anymore. The psalmist realises that he may feel far from God, that he may feel high and away on Mount Mizar, that he might feel that he's in a foreign land, that he's drowning. He may still miss the days when life was better with God, but he's remembered that God is still there with him. And with this remembrance of the nearness of God comes the final consummation of this psalm. For it is not enough that God is there with him but that God will eventually do something about his situation. That's what this psalmist believes. That God will vindicate him. That God will lead him to the temple again, where there will be a day where he will praise him on God's holy hill. And that is exactly what is promised to us as believers. You see, wonderfully, Jesus doesn't just sit with us in these situations, but he has the power to truly do something about them. It may not be this side of eternity, but there will come a day where in Christ we will be presented before God on his holy hill in the new creation where there is no temple because God himself is the temple. And we will meet with him fully in full righteousness in our actual perfected bodies there will, where there will be no more crying or tears or pain or doubt or struggle with sin, where we really will truly be free of all suffering. There will be a day when that is true, and that is a gospel promise. And thanks to Jesus and his identification with the suffering of man, his suffering for man on the cross and in his resurrection, we know that it is true. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
Note as we close that, that this refrain comes again right at the end of this psalm. I think it seems a psalmist, even after realising that God has, in fact, always been where he's always been, watching over him, loving him, vindicating him, preparing a place in the future for him, even in this realisation, even in his prayerfulness, he still struggles with a downcast soul. And that's really helpful. Because it's okay for us to know this to be very true and not always feel it. But friends, my hope and my prayer for us all is that slowly, imperceptibly maybe, in our trusting in this God, in our clinging on to Jesus as if our lives depended on it, and they do, in our struggling to articulate prayers, in our wrestle with deep doubt, in our illnesses, in our suffering, in our depressions, in our despair, that we may all know and feel and rest in that hope in God when we shall once again praise him, Jesus, our salvation and our God. Amen.